Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This episode of Pardes from Jerusalem features Ravanit Nechama Goldman Barish on Parashat Ve'etchanan. If you're interested in downloading other digital content, please visit elmod.pardes.org. Hello, this is Nechama Goldman Barish welcoming you back to another Elmod podcast. This week's Torah portion is Ve'etchanan, the second portion in the book of Deuteronomy, or Dvarim. The theme in Dvarim is Moshe preparing the people in different ways for entry into the land when he will no longer be there. This is highlighted in our Parsha, where Moshe plays the role of teacher and mentor. He explains why the children of Israel should obey God's teachings. He reminds them of what God commanded them at Sinai by repeating the Ten Commandments. He teaches them that fulfilling the commandments will serve as the basis and structure for our relationship with God. Finally, he concludes by explaining the nature of God's love for them. God has actively chosen this people and separated them from others. They have the responsibility to maintain a separate identity to keep themselves holy. It is here that Moshe teaches the nation the language of Shema as a profound statement of commitment that will turn into a Jewish proclamation of faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. The unit consists of two parts. The first, Shema Yisrael, Hero Israel, is a call or appeal to the nation, the collective. The second, Va'ahavta et et Hashem Elokecha, you shall love in singular your God, is addressed to the individual. The first is an affirmation and acknowledgement of the Lord as Israel's God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The second requires human beings to love God and to internalize that love in their heart and soul, having it fill their life all the way to the doorposts of their home and their gates. This structure has the human being as its point of departure, human beings who are addressed by God, and in this case, it's specifically about the children of Israel. This is a fundamental structural characteristic of Sefer Dvarim and a profound reflection of the story of this Sefer, of this book. The next part of the text instructs the Israelites to commit to four rituals, all of which involve the Shema in some way, turning the words into a daily practice evening and morning, teaching the words to one's children, putting the text into tefillin and onto mezuzot. In the third passage of what becomes the prayer text, Shema, which will be cited in next week's Torah portion, we are given a broader look at the conditions placed on embarking on a loving relationship with God. In the text that starts, and it will be if you will listen, we are told that there are conditions to the listening. If we listen, then God will reward us. He will reward us with rain for our land in its proper time and with fertility and with prosperity. And if we don't listen, then God's fury will blaze among us and he, God will close off the heavens and there will be no rain in earth and so on and so forth. We are told that the consequence of our actions will determine the nature of the relationship. If we follow the instructions and pursue God's favor, we will be rewarded. And if not, we will be punished. I want to cite a quote from social and political commentary David Brooks that I think is particularly powerful with regard to this relationship. David Brooks writes, my favorite definition of commitment is falling in love with something and then building a structure of behavior around it for the moment when love falters. 
Jonathan Sachs, who cites Brooks in one of his Parsha lessons, notes that building a structure for our commitment to God is one of the fundamental features of Deuteronomy and Judaism in general. To quote Sachs, commitment is falling in love with something, someone, and building a structure of behavior around it to sustain that love over time. The Shema's text most succinctly summarizes the power of the biblical structure in maintaining God's presence in our midst through our acknowledgement and commitment to the system of laws, statutes, and prohibitions determined by God. With this in mind, it becomes clearer why the entire corpus of rabbinic literature begins with Shema as the paradigm shift from temple-based ritual to a post-temple world. Rabbi Judah the Prince, credited with editing the Mishnah, redacts 63 tractates and almost 4,200 Mishnayot, and he starts with a Mishnah about the Shema. Here is the first Mishnah in Tractate Brachot, which is the opening tractate to all of the tractates of Mishnah. From what time may one recite the Shema in the evening? From the time that the priests enter their homes in order to eat their truma, their tithed food, until the end of the first watch, the words of Rabbi Eliezer. This first Mishnah encapsulates the blueprint for our survival in a post-temple world. Notably, it opens with the question, when do we say Shema in the evening, as if we have already basic, certain basic information? For instance, what is Shema, and where is the obligation to say it to be found? It assumes we understand why we are starting with the evening Shema rather than the morning. In its commentary to our Mishnah, the Talmud explains that the author of the Mishnah knows that Shema is in the Torah, which is why it does not have to explain what it is. Everyone already knows. In other words, this Mishnah is a direct continuation of the passage in Ve'et Hanan, our Torah portion, in which Moshe commands us to utter, utter these words when we lie down and when we awaken. There is a seamless line being drawn from the Torah to the Mishnah, written 1,500 years later. We are simply continuing to say Shema in the evening as commanded by Moshe on the eve of entering the land. Now the Mishnah will come to clarify and categorize times of night and morning to bring clarity and definition to the ritual. This approach of defining and clarifying God's will in the Torah and beyond will define Rabbinic Judaism with its 63 tractates of Mishnah, 1.8 million words of Talmud, and 1,500 plus subsequent years of interpretation. The centrality of the Shema texts as found in Torah will remain a constant. Going back to the first Mishnah, Rabbi Eliezer insists on comparing the earliest time one can say Shema at night to the ability of priests to eat truma in temple times, and the latest time to the end of the first watch in the temple, which would have been about one-third into the night. When does night begin? When the priests can eat their tithed foods, which is at the onset of night. After a seminal emission, priests had to immerse in a ritual bath, a mikvah, and wait until nightfall before eating their consecrated food given to them for free by the nation. They would obviously be eagerly awaiting the earliest onset of night to be able to have their meal. This position of Rabbi Eliezer, written down in, written down in a Mishnah redacted 150 years after the temple is destroyed, serves two purposes. It reminds the reader of the, of the priests and their special status within the nation. Rabbi Eliezer only allows one to say the Shema until the end of the first watch. This too references the no longer existent service in the temple. Here too it reminds the reader that the priests did not rest even at night, that there were three or some say four watches in which they took turns overseeing the burning of the fats and intestines left over from the ritual sacrifices during the day. 
Rabbi Eliezer insists that we remember the temple service when we say Shema, and furthermore, we restructure the time frame around times that were significant in the temple time. The underlying message seems to be that by saying the Shema, we are continuing the temple service through our prayer. Even more powerfully, the hierarchy of the priesthood is flattened by post-temple rituals that continue the covenant even without the sacrifices. If in the temple only the priests could actively serve, when it comes to Shema, everyone can cry out this statement of faith and commitment twice a day. The temple is destroyed, but we continue to express our relationship to God through other rituals, prayers, and the study of Torah. The Mishnah continues, the second position, the sages say, until midnight. Rabban Gamliel says, until dawn. Once it happened that his sons came home from a wedding feast and they said to him, we have not yet recited the Shema. He said to them, if it is not yet dawn, you are still obligated to recite. And not in respect to this alone did they so decide. But wherever the sages say until midnight, the mitzvah may be performed until dawn. The burning of the fat and the pieces may be performed until dawn. Similarly, all the offerings that are to be eaten within one day may be eaten until dawn. In the second half of the Mishnah, we discover there are two other positions that run counter to Rabbi Eliezer. This too is an important characteristic of oral law, in contrast to the written law, the Torah, which is static and unchanging in its text. The sages say simply until midnight, you can say Shema until midnight without contextualizing. Rabbi Gamliel says, no, you can say Shema until dawn which essentially defines night as the entire period of darkness. The story with his sons comes to illustrate the application of this principle. Even at 3, 4, or 5 in the morning, if dawn has not yet broken, one can say Shema. I love it as a distracting mechanism. Imagine tiptoeing home from the Beit Mishteh, the wedding feast where drinking takes place, at 3 or 4 in the morning to discover Dad is waiting up with a stern look on his face. The first thing they say to him is they haven't said Shema. Instead of rebuking them, he is caught up in determining whether they can still do so. Rabban Gamliel goes on to teach that to the sages, midnight is simply a catchphrase for dawn, bringing two examples from the world of temple ritual and sacrifice. Again, note that there is a seamlessness in the way the no longer relevant intertwines with the present and contemporary practices and rituals that define Jewish identity and religious worship in the aftermath of destruction. The final line of the Mishnah brings Rabbinic Judaism's mission statement into clear focus. Why then did the sages stay until midnight, asked the Mishnah, in order to keep a man far from transgression. Much of Rabbinic Judaism is building on biblical commandments, but branching out to create a far broader, wider platform in which to protect the laws of Torah and keep people far from transgression. I find it empowering that this Mishnah flattens the hierarchy and creates an opportunity for all of us to replace the sacrificial worship through prayer, which is a much more democratic structure than that which existed in the temple. However, this is only one frame of reference used to mark the onset of evening in rabbinic text. There are actually five more that are brought in the continuing Talmudic discussion. I want to relate to two that are brought in the Talmud in parallel to the Mishnah we just cited, because they show an awareness of how complex social structures are, however democratic we might try to be post-temple. In a parallel Brita, a parallel Tanaitic text, the question, when does Wadin say Shema at night, meaning when does night begin, is answered with the poor man who sits down to eat his bread. 
What a completely different point of reference. The priest represents the religious elite, and thus we all become the religious elite with our Shema. The poor man who has no candle and only a pita with salt represents a social structure that has no glory or prestige. In this Brita, we are called to acknowledge that without a candle, night is going to come on fast and furious with its unrelenting darkness for lo- those in the lowest socioeconomic society. Their time frame to start and finish Shema will be at dark as they finish their bread and get into bed. They will have nothing else to do. It is a remarkable shift showing the depth of Talmudic discussion. The poor man will be held next to the priest in the ensuing Talmudic analysis. The third point of reference is regular people on Friday night when they get ready to eat their Shabbat meal. This is another interesting and varied reference. By lighting their candles before dark, people will be plunged into darkness when the candle goes out because they won't be able to relight candles. So here too, night will begin earlier than usual. The focus is now on Friday night as if to embody the idea that everything circles back to Shabbat no matter where we are in the week. The priest, the pauper, and the Friday night meal. So many references right here in the beginning of the first rabbinic conversation in the first tractate of Mishnah, which opens up as a continuation to the biblical text in our Torah portion, which symbolizes the nation's commitment to love and worship of God through more than belief and acknowledgement, but a life spent expressing those feelings through a structure of ritual of practice. Whether you're a priest or a poor man, you can continuously and constantly access a loving relationship with God, beginning with the Shema. That is the power of Shema, to understand that to create a love infused with meaning, both with God and with those that we love, we must build around any meaningful relationship, a structure that is composed of listening, Shema, and doing. It is in the small acts of kindness, gestures of self-sacrifice, accountability for one's wrongs, and an ongoing sense of commitment that love can flourish and grow. May we all find ways to strengthen those relationships that need strengthening by listening and acting. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcast today. Be sure to visit us on Spotify, where you can subscribe to any of our other podcast channels, or visit us at elmod.pardes.org. Thanks for listening.